This week on the In-Depth Podcast, swimmer Caleb Dressel, winner of seven Olympic gold medals, five of which came at the Tokyo Summer Games. With Michael Phelps now retired, Dressel's arguably the face of swimming, but it's the kind of talk he prefers to avoid. It's weird for me because I don't consider myself to be that that guy. I don't want to be the guy in swimming. I don't consider myself myself to be that. During my visit to Dressel's home just outside of Gainesville, Florida, we chatted about Phelps' comparisons, how the Olympic delay impacted both him and Ryan Lochte, and some of the ways he tries to keep his mind off swimming. That's all ahead, plus a pet rat and fighting with siblings over a bathtub. That taught me everything I need to know about being a competitor. Um, that was my earliest signs of competition. But we begin on a more serious note, mental health. While it's easy to assume that Dressel returned from Tokyo basking in his success, it was actually anything but. I felt so lost. I wanted to get away from the water, but then that's also one of my safe places. He elaborates on that, and you'll also hear perspectives from his wife, Megan, and both his parents. So let's dive in with Caleb Dressel, who was already feeling adverse effects of the spotlight back in high school. I want to take you back to a moment. Uh, your last high school state meet, you become the youngest ever to go under 19 seconds in the 50 free. And then in the finals, you don't get another best time. How does the crowd react and how does that affect you? Oh goodness, yeah, I remember this. The first thing I heard was like, oh, like sighs of like, dang it. He didn't, he didn't go under 19 again. And that was the first taste of like, screw you guys. Like I just went like 19-0 as a high schooler. But that was the first taste of like that expectation of, oh, you've done it once. He's going to do it again. And I just felt like a entertainment at that point. You would go through these instances, at least on occasion, where like you, you couldn't breathe. Yeah, they were panic attacks. Like describe what that feeling was like when you were in it. Yeah, I, I mean, it was hard to control. I was the number one recruit. All these colleges calling me, people wanting my time. So it was really difficult to swim in high school with all this new attention, this new spotlight and try to swim when you're having a panic attack. He was white as a ghost, slurring his speech and shaking. I thought, oh my God, he's having a heart attack. And he just kept saying, my heart, my heart, my heart. That's Dressel's mother, Christina. He was checked from head to toe. Neurologist, and then that's when they said it was anxiety. The pressure that society, that he put on himself and that society put on was just, he just was constantly going. And you end up uh, like deciding to take six months off at some point th yeah. that year. What made you decide to do that? I needed a break. I needed a break from everything. I didn't have a plan. I didn't know if I was gonna keep swimming after that. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, it was, a, it was an extremely rough time. Didn't wanna do anything, wasn't going to school, wasn't swimming, was pretty much just laying in bed for all hours of the day for a couple months. He would stay in that room with the blinds closed and in the dark and would not go to practice, didn't wanna eat, didn't wanna go. I was like, Caleb, you have to get out of this dark room. You know, you, you got to, you know, he was just in a deep depression. What was kind of the lowest point uh, yeah, that's definitely not something I want to get in today. I mean, I'm, I'm fully aware of what my lowest point was. It's not something I want to say on camera or something I don't know if I'll ever be ready to say. Was it bad enough that you were concerned for just his life? Um, I, I wasn't sure. Did I think deep down Caleb would be, commit suicide? No, but I've had dear friends of mine 
that were in the swimming that their kids have, and it was because of pressure, and I knew how much pressure Kayla put on himself. So deep down, I thought, no, no, it can't be him. But I didn't, I didn't brush it off to where I was a blind mom. I thought, just in case, I wanna reach out to make sure that I'm getting the right people, from a counselor to the people at Clay High. What were the tools that you found successful for you that allowed you to get through it? Being patient and clinging on to the people I was comfortable talking with made me feel more human and made this situation feel like a much more manageable, manageable thing to, to cope with. Not every day was it my parents. A lot of it was Megan, my little sister, and Miss McCool. The kind of role she played in your life as I well. I mean, I think the, the easiest way to sum it up is her, her nickname from not, for not only me, but multiple, a, a few of her students was Mama. She loved me for just being Caleb. It had nothing to do with swimming. She taught me how to be comfortable with myself, be proud of who I am, taking care of the person first, and then the swimming will take care of itself. Yeah, I had little sticky notes on his walls when um, he still lived at home that said swimming doesn't define me. At the same time, they were holding a scholarship spot for him at Florida. He's not swimming. He's not in the pool, and I didn't know that at first. That's Dressel's dad, Michael. Because he was going to practice, and then he was not getting in the water. And then we got wind of it, you know, we talked, and uh, actually I called Coach Troy, and I said, this kid is not swimming, you know, just to give you the heads up, you know, because I didn't know if you need to, you know, get, give a spot to somebody else. They held a spot for me the whole time, and then were patient with me. I remember Troy... There's a quote from him, he said, we don't care if you don't swim till you get here. He goes, you take your time. There was points when I wanted to swim during this, but that's also what was causing some of what I was experiencing. So yeah, I just needed time. But I tell you what, when I did come out of that, when I was ready, it was awesome. Getting back in the water for the first time, um, it felt like I was getting baptized. In the months following Tokyo, your best friend uh, Ben said that it was hard for you. Um, in some sense, I think harder than the, the senior high school year. Um, how so? Yeah, it's brutal. I think the added attention, the uh, monumental moment in our, in our sport is the Olympic Games, an event that happens once every four years for a race that lasts. My longest race is lasting 49 seconds. My shortest is lasting 21 seconds. It was his senior year on steroids. That's Dressel's former swim coach, Greg Troy. One, we're just talking about being a good high school athlete and a guy that's recognized in the United States. Now we've taken the whole thing to a whole nother level. We're at the epitome of, of uh, certainly swimming, but maybe even the sports world and in some dynamic, the Olympics. You go to trials and there's a building that is, the whole wall is Caleb. It's like, oh, no pressure here, Caleb. I think it wouldn't be as dominant as it was if Phelps was still kind of on the platform, right. but because there's no Phelps, it literally gets dumped on him. Even there, he told me, you know, Dad, I couldn't, I couldn't eat and I couldn't poop for like three or four days. I mean, it's just crazy amount of pressure that these are kids. I just think the pressure built up and then when it comes up, it just so happens that that certain point is when everyone wants to be in your business and ask, how is the games? Just so many repeat questions. It was very hard to come back to life and fall into what we were used to 
in a time where every, everything had shifted. That's Dressel's wife, Megan. You know, we had, we were receiving more spotlight than we ever had before. I think people forget that there's a person behind the picture that you see on TV or on an ad. And it's like, oh, this, this athlete, this superstar, like, oh, Caleb Dressel. And it's, you know, that's a part of it. That's a part of him and our story, but that's not who he is. That's not who we are. There's, there's people behind that. It wasn't just me under the microscope. It was very much me and Megan. I mean, we had interviews together. She met me in New York to do the media day after the games, which was brutal. Oh my gosh. I remember watching one of the highlights. I was like, I don't even remember saying that. <laughs> my body was there, but my mind was not in New York. Really what I wanted to do was just lock myself in a room and not talk to anybody. <laughs> but you have to capitalize from a you know, financial standpoint and a down the road standpoint. You can't just do that. You have to take advantage of these moments because I can't swim forever. Like, I want to try to take advantage of the moments that I do have of in my prime years. I don't think I'm in my prime yet. I think I got a couple, couple more years before we start winding down here. What was the single hardest moment from that period? When we were, we were gone for an ISL thing in Italy and there was a moment that we had, we were on the balcony of our hotel room and we just both got super emotional. And the root of that was we need to stop making choices for our life based on what other people are trying to get out of us. We're not a commodity, we're, we're people. And having that kind of aha moment was, it really sh shifted things for us because we decided to, to go home early. When he left that meet and didn't finish that, that section of the ISL, I knew that it was, it was really hard for him, maybe harder than ever before. We call him and he just broke down and started crying. And I was like, you're, you need a break, don't you? He goes, yeah, it's just too much, mom. What's the kind of headspace you're in? I need help with all this. Yeah, um, I, need to, I need to talk to people more. I need to just be honest. I, I felt so lost. I wanted to get away from the water, but then that's also one of my safe places. So it was again, rocking a hard place. Um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty miserable couple months. We were like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is crazy. We have to, we have to learn. We have to learn how to, how to manage this and how to put ourselves first. It, it was impacting the relationship between the two but, of you. Between the two of us, yeah, because there was not any there was no hiding the emotion anymore. I never had doubts that we weren't gonna make it. So it, it took us some time to really be honest with ourselves and with each other about where we were at and what we needed moving forward. And so we started some counseling and therapy, which has been beautiful. It's been a tough first year, I think, for anyone's first year of marriage, having to go through new house, Olympic trials, going to the games, coming back and dealing with all the attention that I guess comes with that. To where are you now in the kind of post-Tokyo process? I mean, we're, yeah, we're vibing now. I needed, I needed the time I took off. It was longer than I would have thought pre-Olympics. Um, I needed every little bit of those, I mean, we'll call it maybe two months. A little inside story, I straight up cried on Christmas just because I still hadn't had my footing 
too well back into training and feeling like my life was back in order. Sometime around January, late January, I was like, oh, I'm in shape. Like I'm hitting times in practice I hadn't hit before and I'm hitting numbers in the weight room where I haven't hit before. Um, so yeah, that, that was a good feeling too when I was like, yeah, I'm back. Coach Troy, the, the role he plays and has played in your life is what? He's my dog. That's my boy. Coach Troy is my boy. Um, and what a very interesting relationship from start to end. Um, just the, pro the progression that we've made as swimmer coach and as man to man. I look up to that guy so much. The amount of his time and life he has invested in myself, um, the potential he saw in myself as all the way back from a high schooler. Uh, I mean, I owe him, I owe him everything. Uh, he taught me there's more to life than swimming. And he also taught me how to wring out every bit of talent you have in swimming and life and just learning along the way. Like, cool, I can swim fast in a pool. That doesn't matter at the end of the day. What am I learning from the water? What am I applying to my life where I'm learning about myself and moving forward? And I give credit to Coach Troy on that one. What made you decide you wanted to make a change? Coaching change? <laughs> the months after Tokyo, I was fried. I needed something different to be able to get back in the water and the mindset that I wanted to be able to look forward to something. So, and our group fizzled out a little bit, like a lot of people retired from our group. So I needed to be around people again. That was the biggest buy-in. I wanted to be able to give back and I felt a little bit stale. I think one-on-one -on -one is a bad dynamic. Swimming is already a pretty boring sport. You're just looking at a black line going back and forth. He draws energy from the group and, and they draw energy from him. And so it's kind of a two-way street. So coming back, I wanted to be able to give back. I wanted to be able to look at the freshman, sophomore kid next to me and like, hey, try this or good job on that. Like I genuinely feel like a coach, an in-water coach, and it's awesome right now. Like I want, I want that target on my back. I want to be able to help these kids along their, their path and help them with their goals. And I, I definitely have that right now. I need a little break too. 21 was a tough year. It was really tough. At that point, I just said, you know, guys, I'm taking off for a while. I don't know when I'll be back. If you gotta find some pool time place to do what you need to do. So I think just the universe kind of lined up at the right time with, I think he was just kind of at a point to where he wanted to tone it down. And I was at a point to where I needed to be around more people. It had nothing to do with Troy as a coach. I think he's a great coach. I think he's a great person. I think I just needed a little change. What was the thinking or just the mindset even going into that conversation? I was so nervous because I didn't want to burn any bridges and I didn't want to hurt anybody. That was my biggest thing. I, I did not want to wrong Troy. Um, I was super nervous about bringing it up and it was the most casual thing ever. We went to five guys actually to, to kind of talk about this and he basically just went, no, yeah, I think that, that could be a really good option for you. I was like, it was that easy? Like, well, this is, this is why this guy isn't just a coach to me. This is why he's considered one of my good friends is because he was giving honest feedback and it wasn't, oh, well, you don't want to be my athlete anymore, him upset about anything. It was just a genuine, oh, I think that's great. Just know my door is always open. Just basically everything that I could have wanted to hear, he was saying to me. And it, I was like, this is the most perfect, neat little bow closure I've, I've ever had. Part of my job is to teach the athlete how to own what they're doing. When they own what they're doing, they're much better. So I think his future is limitless, but uh, I didn't want to hold it back by not having the appropriate time and the appropriate things to do. So the best thing I could do was let those reins go a little bit. To what extent was that a bittersweet 
conversations? Um, I think it's more sweet than bitter. We have an appreciation for one another. We worked together a long time. Um, there's a friendship involved just as much as there is that, that coach-athlete relationship. And uh, I, we just come off the Olympics. We won the three toughest events there are in swimming. You mentioned the friendship aspect. You were obviously a groomsman in his wedding. Uh, tell about the present he gave you. You know, you, athletes give you presents every once in a while. It's kind of nice. And uh, what he gave me was a shadow boxed. Uh, he gave me his uh, first Olympic individual gold medal from the 100 freestyle. What did it mean to you? Never had an athlete do that before. I know what he put into that. I know the pressure he dealt with. And uh, I know how much that medal means to him. For him to do that means an awful lot. You remember your reaction when you found out the Olympics were being postponed? I don't remember what I felt in that exact moment, but I knew there was nothing I could do about it. So I just stayed the course and got ready for what the next plan of action was gonna be. Cause I was ready to go in 2020. I don't know if it was more so than 21. Maybe it was more so than 21. I don't know, but I was, I was ready to rock in 2020. For me, the toughest piece was trying to um, factor in the, the disappointment the expectation. Uh, if we can handle this disappointment, move forward, we can handle anything. So I think it made him a stronger athlete. And you think he would have been better if the games were in 20? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind. It like pains me to say that, but yeah, I think there maybe could have been some truth to that. And I've never been one to be a woulda, coulda, shoulda, but I'm just saying right now, Looking back, I, I was ready to go in 2020. Who knows if it would have been faster, but I was ready to go. And why do you think the one less year would have had a positive impact? That was the that was a four-year plan that Troy put together. Everything had led up perfectly until that point. I was having some really good practices. And then it just threw a huge loop in everything. But at 21, I had some really good practices as well. It's just that actual couple months of having your routine thrown out of whack. I think that was just the biggest, the biggest harm. And we made it work. We made it work with the situation we were given. And that's all we could have asked for. I think had we swum in 20, um, I think he would have been better. I, I think Ryan Lochte would have been dramatically better. They were primed. Um, it was a normal pressure then. They were prepared for the normal pressure. And you think Ryan would have made the Olympic team? I feel pretty comfortable. Ryan would have made it in 2020. Yeah, he wasn't ready to go another year. He was ready to go in 2020. That's what the plan was. I think swim 2020 and then hang it up. Yeah. And having to go that extra year, I think really, really mentally drained him. Especially coming off of people not getting off his back for the Rio incident, um, the IV thing. Like he went through a lot and then having this one last curveball thrown in, I think broke him. But yeah, he, he would have made the team in 2020 for sure. I think he would have been really fast too. I think it hurt a lot of people. I think that's why few people are hanging it up right now, just going through the COVID year, going through the Olympic cycle and then coming back home. Um, there's a few of my two teammates who are calling it right now. And it's kind of sad because like I'm the same age as them. It's like, well, I'm not ready to be done at all. Yeah, It's a brutal year. What about it do you think caused some to just say I'm done. There was just so many things that were questionable. Nothing was guaranteed. Nothing was certain. The mental strain that that put on everybody of not knowing where your next meet's going to be, not knowing if you're going to have a next meet. Uh, just your routine was just slaughtered. 
Like I was running for a little bit because we had limited pool time. I hate running. <laughs> I like running fast and like for little spurts, but like what? I was like running miles. I was like, I, I mean, I had to. I had to stay in aerobic shape. I became an animal on the rower. But yeah, we, we made it work. We made it work, but it broke a, it broke a lot of people. And what were the most notable ways it was disruptive? Limited pool time. I, I had pool time Monday to Thursday, singles. So it's only four practices a week. And then f I was lifting. I was lifting in my strength coach's garage. There's actually some parts of COVID that I missed. Um, usually on Fridays, because we didn't have practice Saturday, um, was just white wine night. That was me and Bailey. <laughs> It was rough. It was rough in the morning, but white wine night. We would just buy, gosh, it was gross as you could get a, a liter. So, no, 1500, 1500 milliliter, one and a half liter for like $12. And we would play Mario Kart, drink white wine. We would have Avicii dance night parties. And it was so fun with, oh, these the speakers are upstairs. I got these like four foot speakers half off from Best Buy because some little kid like poked holes in them, but they work fine. <laughs> and oh my gosh, white wine Avicii Fridays were, it was Moscato, it was so gross, it was so gross. How did uh, Ryan Lochte and Michael Phelps influence you? Jeez, I mean, there's, there's things I'm still learning from this day. Uh, I mean, till this day, especially because I've gotten thrown in the, into the comparison boat, which I do not think is fair to Michael or myself or the swim world two different types of swimmers, but there's more things I understand of how Michael work and operate, worked and operated, kind of not on the same level that he is, but a similar level that Michael was of just his approach to training. And I think his overall obsession with the sport. I think that's why he was so good. He was, I think, genuinely addicted and obsessed with swimming. I have gotten to that point, but again, the, the goal this year was to have that balance. Um, and then Ryan was super chill, laid back. He's so hard to beat in practice though. He could just turn it on. He could turn it on like a switch. And, and you swam with him for a while. Yeah, I trained with him. He would have made the team in 2020. Um, when he wanted to beat you, he would beat you. And just picking up on, on these cues and practice of, of him being able to turn on that, that killer mode. Um, and me learning from that. Ryan's biggest thing was how he approached the kids. Anytime a kid wanted an autograph, it was getting signed. Um, no matter how late Ryan does stay after a meet. And I was one of those kids. I don't really remember it, but he took the time to sign something for me. And it's just weird because now I'm in the boat signing stuff. It's weird for me because I don't consider myself to be that, that guy. I don't want to be the guy in swimming. I don't consider myself, myself to be that. Ryan had the same approach. Ryan, every year, he would take the world standings and he would cross his name out the top of the list and he'd write it at the bottom. He wanted to be the one chasing. He didn't want to be the one being chased. And Ryan was terrible in high school. He just were he was self-made. He worked, he was Florida made and he was self-made. He turned himself into something that was the best of the best in the sport of swimming. If we didn't have Ryan or we didn't have Michael, I don't think you would have seen world records like we have. Those two pushed each other to a level that I don't think we're gonna see for a while. Why do you avoid the Phelps comparisons? It's not fair to Michael, it's not fair to me, it's not fair to the sport. It's two different swimmers. Michael swam everything from a hundred free, hundred full high, all the way up to a four AM. He's the goat. He's the best to ever do it. I think if the Beijing Olympics was spread out over a longer period of time and he had more rest between events, um, I think he could have won. I think he could have been the best in the world at 10 events, truly. I'm not as good of a swimmer as Michael Phelps, and I'm fine with admitting that. I don't have that type of skill set. I think I'm faster than I'm short course. Um, I'm faster than I'm at the sprints, but it's one skill set versus the other. 
I'm not gonna win eight gold medals. There's not, I can't, it's not even eight events I can swim. Michael won eight, so now the next guy in line has to win nine. That's not fair to anybody. Like, I think five's still pretty darn good. Um, but now I'm not done there. There's still things I wanna do in this sport. What's the ceiling for you? I've never been one to sh want to share goal times. Those are very, very private to me. But yeah, there's, I know I can go faster and that's why I'm still showing up every day in practice looking for those couple tenths or hundredths, whatever it may be. I'm, I just enjoy the process of putting in the work. And then, like I said, it's kind of the, the, the racing is just kind of a byproduct. The part I really enjoy is the training. Even if a guy like Phelps is now retired, I mean, don't you have the same mentality in terms of, you know, going after records he, he set? No, that's not, that's not why I'm in the, in the sport. I don't want to compare myself to anybody. I think that, I can think I'd be pretty detrimental. I want to compare myself to what I feel like I'm capable of. And that's, that's what it is, point blank. If, I, if my standard is Michael Phelps and I never reach that or I surpass that, then what? Who, then who do you compare yourself to? I think you can only compare yourself to what your potential is and what you're, you're capable of doing. And that's right now what I base my goal times off of, not anybody else. I think if I hit my goal time and I still touch the wall second, I think I'd still be happy which is a huge debate because some people would just be like, no, I could go slowest time I've ever gone and touched first and got a gold medal and I'd be good to go. But I don't, I don't think I'm that way. How did your performance in Tokyo compare to your goals? I didn't hit any of my goal times in Tokyo. Yeah, I think that's a, the easiest way to put it. It makes me sound like ungrateful, but yeah, there, there's races where I didn't hit my goal times and I wanted to go faster and things I should have done better. That was my first instinct after coming home and that's not fair to myself. That, that's not fair at all. Like I just, just won five gold medals on the, the biggest world stage in, in sports. And I'm thinking about how I wish I would have gone faster in certain events. Usually you're trying to motivate someone to be better than what they think they can be. And now you got a guy that's as good as or better than anyone and he never thinks it's good enough. I think that's what makes me great. But I think that's can also be detrimental if I want to have longevity in this sport is you have, there has to be a balance of both those. It's one of my biggest faults is I, I, I don't do as good of a job as I would like to do, giving, giving myself credit when credit's due. But I still think there's, there's times out there that I'm capable of going. That's why I'm so hungry in the sport. And that's why I still want, still want the guys next to me pushing me. Like it's, it's fun. Even unrelated to swimming, I've been told you will get super obsessive. Uh, in what ways? Oh geez, like hobbies and stuff. I like finding new things. Swimming's like the one thing in my life that has been consistent for many years, um, but I'll just find something that I like, and that that's the thing that I will focus on. Most recently, it was like overlanding, or basically just driving into a state forest or something, or national forest, and just driving around. Like I found it so much fun. And that lasted for, I don't know, maybe two months, something. But I was like, I was in too deep. Like I was just obsessing over, like that was it. I was like buying all this stuff for my truck, and then now that kind of like died off. Um, drums are in right now for me. But that drums have been around since like fifth grade. And it was like playing Pokemon at one point. Pokemon's never gone away. I'm playing the new one right now and it's fantastic. Take me through one of your purge phases. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, it's, I guess you've done your research. Um, yeah, so I think one of my worst was, or one of my most purgy purges, I'll put it that way, it was probably leading up to trials. I threw like everything out. I had like, I'm not kidding. My closet was like everything. Everything I owned was probably like this much on the, 
on the hangers. Um, I didn't realize at the time that it was like not normal behavior, but that's, that was my go-to thing for nerves and anxiety. I didn't really realize it until I got back from Tokyo. I was like, where's all my stuff? Um, but yeah, anything I felt that was in the way, whether it be a mental block or a physical block, such as something as minuscule as a coffee mug, it got the boot. So just trying to clear out every obstacle in my life that interfered with me having the blinders on with the goal being trials in Tokyo, it got the boot. So that's how I dealt with it. I would just throw stuff out. Yeah, whether it be clothes, coffee mugs, suits, goggles, I hated having extra, anything. Um, photos on my phone, music on my phone. Yeah, it was, I don't wanna get back to that point. I still wanna be minimalistic in some regard, but it was, it was, too much. How much, if at all, would it help you when you were in it? I think it gave me a little bit of release, but it was always there was always something else that I could have thrown out. I think I eventually got to the point where I was like, okay, this is this is probably enough. Because I would I would get home from practice and immediately that's just what I would do is start looking for stuff to throw out, just looking for something to do to fill the I think the the void of not thinking about races or what's what's coming up. Yeah, it's a lot easier to kind of reminisce on this stuff and think about it now than when it was going on. I didn't think twice about it when I would, when it was going on, but I'm just picky about what I hang on to. So like, yeah, don't, don't send me gifts. Cause if I'm being honest, like 85% of the time, it'll just be donated. It's baggage, you know, it's not, not, not physical weight, but these are all things that I got to keep up with. So I probably could name everything that I own. Yeah. I could probably name every shirt I have and stuff like that. And your mom told me actually it started uh, with one of your siblings and the, the whole kind of minimalist lifestyle. I actually used to be a pack rat. Yeah, totally in high school. Yeah, I, I, I would find like a bouncy ball on the ground and be like, sick, this is coming home with me. Once I probably hit junior, senior year of college, I started clearing out like a lot of things. And then Tyler, so my older brother, we have stupid competitions. Like I owned one pair of jeans at one point, he owned two. And I was like, I was like flexing on him with like, I was like, dude, how many pair, how many pair of jeans you got? And he's like, two. I was like, hmm, I only have one. I'm pretty sure he went home and got rid of them, his second pair. And then like our iPhone, like home screen, like I only have one page on my phone. Um, and he's the same way. Like, I think I might have two more apps than him or something like that. And then uh, my dad recommended a book. It was um, The Magical Art of Tidying Up. It's a great book. If anyone listening to this, if you're looking for something to kind of like help clean out your life. Uh, but actually by the time I read it, I had already gotten rid of everything I possibly could have. Um, but rereading it helped kind of put things into perspective. There's nothing I've regretted at this moment that I've thrown out. Green Cove Springs. Describe what life was like growing up there as a kid. I mean, I, I didn't think anything of it until like, I say I'm from Green Cove and everyone's like, where? I'm like, oh, okay. I'm from a very small town. My dad got some land around my probably junior, senior year of high school. And that was on 60 acres and that was really fun. That was like 15, 15 minutes from the house I grew up in. I mean, 60 acres, it was a, from the front gate to the back, it was about a mile. So yeah, you could definitely get lost out there. It was nice. <laughs> uh, so tell about Blue Bath. Blue Bath, it was a whole, it wasn't just a bathtub, it was a blue bathroom. Yeah, the blue bath had a the blue uh, tile, blue toilet, blue tub. That's Russell's dad, Michael. There'd be four kids fighting for that. We had a 
part of it is we had a 40-gallon water heater, four kids, you know, six of us in the house. I would hear one of the other kids get up, and I would dart for that, because you only got a shower and a half of warm water. So I'd get my shower, and then the next kid would run out, and the other two kids were screwed. That taught me everything I need to know about being a competitor. Um, that was my earliest signs of competition. So if you wanted a shower, you wanted hot water, you had to get up early and you had to beat everybody else to the bathroom. Usually on the way back from practice, it's the first thing. You know how like the rules of shotgun in a car is like, so how I play is you have to see the car, you call shotgun. So the rules of blue bath were you had to be in the car and then you could call, it'd be, I call blue bath. And that meant when we got home from practice in 45 minutes, they had dibs on the shower. So I got really good at calling blue bath because I'd be the first one in the car. I call blue bath. And then they, all of them respected the rules. <laughs> um, we all knew the rules of blue bath. When you were growing up, there was some bullying incident oh, yeah. in school? Did he like terrorize you for a year? Like a lot of kids out there, I was so unsure about a lot of things, self-conscious about a lot of stuff. Like I wore glasses during that time and wasn't super proud of the fact that I swam. Like it, it's not the coolest sport. And because of the Speedo too. You exactly. The yeah, I didn't want to tell anyone like, what? That's the last thing I want to admit to. And now it's like, check me out. But yeah, it was a brutal time. I was just super self-conscious about wearing a Speedo. I had glasses, I was like skinny. Um, a lot of things I was self-conscious about, like a lot of kids, but yeah, this this kid, this kid sucked. What would he do? Um, just little things here or there, maybe a slap here or there, just not the nicest, not the nicest words. He was just a bully, like the most classic example of a bully. Yeah, and then um, I'll tell you what though, my siblings had my back. Uh, they got in trouble. I want to say, I see that Caitlin or Tyler got suspended because they basically went up to him and basically said, like, this is the, I'm framing it very nicely, basically said, like, stop picking on my brother or there'll be further consequences, uh, which was awesome, like, to, for them to have my back like that. Wait, yeah. so why'd they get suspended then? Yeah, we, we didn't, we don't go to that school anymore, probably because, like, examples of stuff like that. Um, but teachers maybe wanted them to bring it to a teacher instead of them handling it themselves. But I think my, my dad actually told him, he's like, no, you need, to, you need to handle this for Caleb. That was a very, I think, uh, a very cool core memory that I have from growing up. My siblings have my back. In what ways did Caitlin motivate you when you were younger? So Caitlin was the one who kept me in the sport, um, for sure. She, she was kind of my go-to when, not when I would get frustrated with my, my parents, because my parents never forced me to swim. It was never, you have to swim. It was just Caitlin putting it into perspective of this is why I think you should stay in it. There's a lot of people who care about you in this sport. I've seen your smile or I've seen your face light up in practice. I've seen how happy you are at swim meets. I can honestly say I don't know if I would still be swimming if it weren't for Caitlin because she was the one sibling that was still in the water with me. I don't know if Sheridan was doing swimming at this point. So being able to lean on Caitlin was, was huge. How do you think each of your parents influenced you? I mean, those are, I couldn't answer your question of who was an athlete that was like my role model because for me it was, it was my parents. My mom's the most caring person I've ever met. She always puts people, always puts people first. Um, you can always count on mom, even till this day. If I were to call her right now and say, mom, you have to get up here, I promise you she'll be here in an hour. Um, and then my dad, just very philosophical, um, protective over his inner circle. So my mom's definitely the social butterfly and my dad is, not everyone else can kick rocks, but kind of everyone else can kick rocks, but kind of his family and his inner circle. They work very, very well together. But yeah, definitely those two are my role models. Your mom said one of her most vivid memories is you and your three siblings like sitting down with her and asking, 
if Dad's gonna. Oh jeez. Uh, yeah, he's gonna die. Yeah, I, I I'm, I'm kind of glad I was a little too young to remember this. <laughs> right. um, goodness. So we sat the kids down and we told them all, you know, you know, Dad's got terminal cancer, but you know, God can doesn't mean he's gonna go anywhere. That's Dressel's mother, Christina. We're gonna do our best, take him to the best places, and hopefully get it taken care of. And of course, that was their first question: Is Daddy gonna die? Like, no. <laughs> It was tough, but we had radiation treatments twice a day for six weeks. And what do you remember from being told he's in the clear? You know, with cancer, they, they'll tell you, okay, he's in remission, but true remission, they say, is really after five years. But I really didn't feel at peace until I hit that five-year mark, because then I was like, okay, the chances of it coming back is really slim. He's a tough one. He doesn't complain, it's funny. So we, on the Appalachian Trail last year, when we went for six days, and, th and this was one of the things on your dad's dream board to yeah, do yeah, the yeah. entire yeah, 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 yeah. trail, right? So he's done a good amount from, he started in Georgia and he's gone all the way up to West Virginia now, but I did not hear him complain once on the trail. And this is coming from an ankle that's been busted from cancer. He had, he has, he's got a different man's ACL on his knee. He had an ACL replacement, didn't say a peep. And he's hiking 10 miles a day with a bum ankle, a bum knee, and he's just enjoying his time out in the woods. And I would even catch myself sometimes of like, oh, we have how many more miles till base camp or my siblings? Like, and you kept running out of food and water, right? Oh, that was the, that was the worst thing for me. It wasn't, it wasn't the like physical part. It was just, I was so hungry the whole time. Well, and they already brought double food for you, I heard. They, Caitlin, so my sister was kind of the one helping me out of like, hey, this is how much you should, you should pack. And she took into account, so she thought she took into account how much I eat with swimming. Dude, I was just so hungry the whole time. Was starving. We're the ones that almost starved to death. We're the ones giving them our rations. Oh, really? To this kid, yeah. Uh, that's yeah, funny. Bone Dry was his trail name. So when we refueled after three days, like we repacked our food. My mom was our our uh, pack mule. She met us with the car like halfway in, and then we got more food. So I I packed like triple after that, and I was good to go. I was fine the last like three or four days, but. I was like begging people for scraps. I was like, please. I was like, I'm so hungry right now. What lessons do you think you learned about money growing up? Ooh, I've had my dad to help me on that one. If I wanted a new part for my drum set, I would make deals and you'd have to earn it. If you hit your goal time or if you set a goal of making this many practices, you would follow through on the deal. There's some things where I think it's worth spending money on, like hobbies or freaking mower outside, that was worth every penny. So I don't have to, it doesn't take me three hours to mow anymore. I just bought a new drum set, but these are things that I'm engaged in. These are things where it takes body, mind, and soul to put energy into. But stupid spending, you're not gonna catch me slipping on anything with that. I've just learned a lot from that guy of material goods don't really offer nearly as much as just being around family. I found way more joy in just enjoying time with my, my inner circle. No new friends, that's the motto. When you're going through life, you know, it's not like any specific lesson. I mean, just me being me, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you try and teach them what you believe in, what you think is right. I mean, but even today, some of them fell for it. Honestly, straight up, I thought I grew up like super poor because my dad was just good with money. Um, now I'm older, I'm like, dude, you were, you were a doctor. We were not poor, but I didn't know we had money growing up and I'm glad we didn't. Like we had to earn everything we did until this day I took that lesson with me. You have to, what you put in is what you get out. It was never any flashy spending. It was only thing out of necessity or anything that'll get you outdoors. My dad was all for buying. And I think I'm like, I'm kind of like that till this day. Uh, and still trying to keep that minimalistic mindset of, I don't need all this stuff. I know we're in a spacious house and 
everything like that, but just really only the things that'll give you genuine joy, genuine happiness. What kind of animals did you have? Uh, what did we not have? We, I mean, we had reptiles, mammals, birds. We had everything. Horses, um, dogs, guinea pigs. I had a bird at one point. It's the meanest thing ever. Uh, still super mean. And then cats, um, hamsters, which got out a few times. Did you ever do the pet rat? Yeah, that was, uh, oh yeah, so that story, I told my mom I was going to get a turtle. I was like, yeah, me and Megan are gonna get a turtle. And we had probably been dating a year, two years. Like the cute like thing to do when you're dating someone, like, oh, we're gonna get a pet together. But we were, like, we're not gonna get a dog or a cat, like we were still in high school. So I was like, mom, I'm gonna get a turtle. I was in there, I was like, Megan, just humor me. Let's go check out the rats. She's like, maybe, let me hold it. So we held this one. I was like, I'm about to walk out of here with a rat. This is <laughs> the cutest rat ever. And my little sister, I sent a picture of Sheridan and she snitched on me to my mom and my mom's like, don't come home with a rat or you're not coming, like you or the rat are not coming inside. I was like, okay, put your money where your mouth is. So I bought the rat, named her Ellie and we'll skip a few months down the road. My mom fell in love with this rat. I don't know what it was about this rat, but it was him and Megan's little child. Went everywhere with him, went to the beach with him, we go, She'd put it in her purse and go to restaurants. I'm like, oh my God. Really? Yes. I would like, I'd be eating dinner. I'd just kind of give her a, a berry, a strawberry or pasta. She was really special. Oh, and then I bred her. Yeah, I left that part out. Yeah, I was a punk, dude. So I, I bought, I went to the pet store a couple months down the road and I got a, a male rat whose name, don't know if you have to edit this out or not. His name was Big Nuts. Um, <laughs> I, bred, I bred these rats, dude. Like. So disrespectful, and I didn't really tell anybody. And then Ellie got pregnant and had 16 babies. They were super friendly, so I couldn't just say, you're going to a pet store because they get fed to a snake because I got attached. And we found homes for all of them to like with like teammates and stuff, cousins. Like They all wanted these little baby rats, and they were so, so cute. Um, so Ellie actually made it all the way to college with me. And then she got a tumor, which got removed. My dad's a veterinarian, so my dad got her a couple more months. That's when I got attached to Ellie, because she got a pituitary tumor uh -huh. and got really sick. Me and Christina took this thing, and I would take her to work, and we all got attached to her. And then she had something in her brain, like there was a disconnect, and she like had trouble walking and stuff. But my dad put on this medicine where we got, I think, three more months out of her, and then she ended up just passing from old age. We had her cremated and we had like a little um, ceramic paw print. So my dad usually sends dogs and cats if people want them cremated and like the little ceramic memorial thing. And they're like, we've never done a rat. So the little ceramic thing, it's her front feet, her back feet, and then her tail, like the imprint of her tail. It's like, it's so funny. But we actually, um, was it the apple tree? We put her, we spread her ashes over one of our apple trees out there that we planted as a wedding gift. And then we spread them around the pasture. So Ellie got to go to rest here where we're, we'll be here a while. So we spread her ashes and then we buried the ceramic thing under the apple tree as well. So how did you and Megan meet? We swam late night together at Bowles. I mean, if you grow up swimming in Florida, you kind of know, you kind of know everybody a little bit. So we were probably at meets together around like age six, six, age eight. 
She totally had a crush on me when I was little. He was the, the heartthrob of all the little girls at oh, the was time. He? he was. Every everybody knew who, who Caleb was. That's Dressel's wife, Megan. What did people think of him back then? There was, he was hot. Like all all the girls would just kind of like, and he was fast at that time too. So he he stood out, and yeah, we'd be at some meets, and all the girls would like, you know, you have your little crushes when you're young, and he was definitely one of them. But then we grew up and weren't really friends until he came to bowls. And then we were friends for years. Once we started swimming late night together, I was like, dang, this girl's super hot. <laughs> and then it yeah, kind of made, just kind of made a move. When did each other know the other one was the one? Uh, I mean, I, to I told her like two months into dating, I was gonna marry her, but that probably happens a lot with high school kids, like that dumb love, but I was being serious. I guess we just kind of knew. Yeah, she's only my third girlfriend. I really didn't have too many girlfriends. This happened super organically. We were friends and slowly, like I was going through kind of a hard time and leaned on him as a friend and it just kind of turned into something more. In what ways did he help you get through your hard time? He just really helped me understand and see my value in who I am for no other reason other than me being me. And that was, like really special for me at that time because I did not feel that way about myself at all. So how'd you propose? Uh, so I went to, we had a meeting place in high school called Chance Pier. So my sister's a photographer and Caitlin was like, okay, I'm gonna tell Megan, we're gonna do a photo shoot. Like we're in town for Thanksgiving. Like it's not an out of, out of the norm thing to do with Megan. She's like, well, actually I think it would be really great if we could get you and Caleb together to do it. She did our senior pictures back in the day together, and she's like, it's been years since then. It would just be really special to do the same pictures in the same places. And I was like, yeah, you're right, but he's not gonna wanna do that. So I had it myself all worked up, thinking like, okay, I gotta pick my moment, like get him when he's in a good mood, and like, hey, do this photo shoot. And I was like, oh, I don't know, like going along with it, like where do, where do you wanna take photos? Because I don't wanna do a photo shoot. And then I was like, okay, sure. Like, we'll just make it quick. And in my head, I was like, that was so easy. Like, that should have been way harder, but I'm gonna roll with it. He convinced me it was all my idea without knowing what was happening at all. We had everything, all this whole thing planned out. We started downtown Green Cove, and then we went to the pier, get some more shots, had the like timing perfect to where the lighting was gonna be exactly where we wanted. And then just kind of gave Caitlin the like signal of like, okay, I'm about to do this. And then he like gave me a push forward and I turned around to be like, why'd you push me? And I turned around and he's on the ground. And I, I thought he fell at first. And the first thing out of my mouth was, you're kidding me. I've never been more surprised in my life. And I'm a pretty intuitive person. So to act like fully surprise me is a hard thing to do. And he pulled it off. Uh, ben said, I need to ask you about your crying. My crying? Yeah. He said, uh, Caleb's the um, emotional type. He goes, and it's not just crying. It turns, uh, his, his words, he said, it turns ugly crying. He's talking about the wedding. He's talking about his wedding picture. He's probably trying to make fun of me because we both have, we both have pictures of us at the altar of when Megan's walking down the aisle and then his wife Paige is walking down and we both look. Terrible. Probably for the sake of this interview, we should. I just probably give you both the ugly cry faces, and then you can determine whose was where. He looks like a fish, and I just look like bad. He's a very tender-hearted man, and I love that about him. I think that's pretty rare to find 
in these days, but he's not afraid to wear his heart on his sleeve. Coming from marriage and family therapy background, emotions are my bread and butter. Like, I love that. Examples of that would be like, what? So, like, um, if he comes home and he has a hard day, like nothing is really hidden on his face at all. He'll just get home and just fall into my arms. Or at, at our wedding, his, his parents never had a first dance at their wedding. And so we gave them one at ours and just tears streaming down his face. And it's something that is really a part of our everyday. Like not just the crying, but really embracing the joys and really feeling the hurts too which that's part of being human. You realized once you got married, you had to become a better man and husband. Well, uh, yeah. How so? Uh, that's not fair to Megan. Of course I would want to keep progressing in every aspect of my life. There's still things that I've been married I'm figuring out about Megan. Like now that we're it genuinely, as you're doing it right, it's one person and it's tough. It's really hard. I guess no one really prepared me for that. It's, it's worth it. But I think she's learned things about me that she didn't know before of how I work and operate of how sometimes I don't want, sometimes don't touch me. I love you so much, but don't touch me. Um, and like, sometimes I don't want to talk about anything. Don't touch me and don't talk to me. Um, <laughs> like she's had to, you know, figure that out. And sometimes Megan just needs a hug. So we're very different in different aspects. The way we've been able to like push each other to grow as individuals and as a couple has, has been really, really special. And I'm just so, grateful for that piece of our relationship. It, it was, I think, a marriage counselor that told you to think about yourselves as one person. What was it about that that hit you? Yeah, it was our, it was our officiant. So it was her uncle. Yeah, when he said that, I was like, I was like, repeat that? I don't know, I had never heard it before. It like, kind of freaked me out, I guess, in a good way. It's like marriage is when two people become one. And really trying to hone in on that and figure out what that means is what we've been trying to do this whole time. And it's not, it's not pretty all the time. How about best lesson learned from going through all of it? Communicate no matter how dumb it sounds, no matter how stupid it is, just say something because it's going to turn into something bigger down the road. So uh, Toyota, explain your family's history with Toyota. So yeah, it goes way back. This is, this is one of the most organic sponsors I have, relationships I have is with me and Toyota. So my... That's all we've ever owned. There was never not a Toyota in the driveway. That's honestly all I thought existed. I was like, <laughs> why would you buy anything besides the Toyota? That's just what I was used to. I think it helped that I had Jane the dog. She probably was half the reason I got that sponsorship. Yeah, it's been just super, super organic for me. Um, and I'm interested in Toyotas. You know, I like, I'm kind of nerd out over the different trucks and stuff that they have. Oh, do you? Yeah, I know. Well, like, oh what, like which one? Uh, then I mean, the new Tundra coming out. I've watched so many videos. Like, Toyota's not making me watch these videos. I just like Toyota trucks. Like my Tacoma, is a it's, my Tacoma is a stick shift, and that thing is so fun to drive. During like my my Overland phase, when I was going and trail riding in my truck, like it was so fun. I was like, okay. I wonder this has a very large following. Like, this is awesome. I, it, you had a Tacoma when you signed with Toyota. That was my baby before they were anywhere near me. I, I, I understand you're looking for a, a new one too, right? So we're kind of out of power with the Tacoma. I need, I need a little more beef. So I'm asking them for the, the new Pro Tundra, which is cool because I like, I don't want a full electric car now, but I want something with power, but I'm not going to be going to the like Jiffy every five seconds to fill it with gas. Um, so the new Tundra's got better gas mileage than the car I have now, and 
I can actually tow stuff. So how aware are you of your grandpa's history with uh, Toyota? He worked there 30 years, right? He worked a very long time. What was his reaction when he found out Toyota was sponsoring you? So I, th I think he actually cried. I think he shed a tear. Like that's just how how much Toyota means to him. And I think for his, his grandson to be a part of that as well, I think it was just emotional for him. He was with him. If, if it was, I'm not sure how long it was, but if it was anywhere close to 30 years, I can understand how you could be invested into something like that. Um, but yeah, I think when we got it, it was actually, we gave him a, it was like a Toyota license plate that said, I think USA and it had the Olympic rings on it. And I think, I think that's when he got a little, a little emotional. What's it like being part of team Toyota as an athlete? I mean, it's, it's, it's great. And my favorite part is, of course, the Olympians, but the Paralympians. It's like, okay, my sport is hard enough, and I have every limb. I can see. I can hear. And, like, Jessica Long, who's uh, part of the Team Toyota, she's doing it with no legs. I actually had a training training session with her, and we were I was doing, like, one of the main sets, and she was she was on my tail. I was like, what? The, I was like, what? The, how are you doing this right now? But they're just... Awesome. So that's my favorite part about Team Toyota is definitely, definitely the Paralympians. They're just the most down-to-earth, coolest, genuine people you've ever met. Uh, journaling. Um, okay. I, I hear you kind of have a unique habit in, in that regard. Explain like what you'll do and the detail you'll go into. So I have, I usually have two. Um, the first one's my swim. I call it a logbook. I probably have like maybe 12 full like the old school composition notebooks of like every practice I've done since around 15 or 16. Um, but yeah, I try to keep it as detailed as I can just to, I rarely look back at them to be honest. Maybe one day they'll be valuable. Maybe I can sell them. I don't know. And when you look back at them, what will you look at on the rare occasion? Okay. So to be honest, it's usually when I'm freaking out on taper and your body starts to feel like trash. Um, I'll flick, flip back to where I was at this point last year and every year it's the same thing. So every time I get in my own head and then I'll flip back and be like, oh, the same thing happened last year, the same thing happened two years ago, three years ago. It's the same same story every time the brain likes to forget. And it started with, was it Coach Jason? Jason. Yeah, Jason was the first coach I had who just mentioned something about a logbook. Every Wednesday we would hand them to him and he would read them. That was the first time I started like really diving in deep with stroke technique and getting like a solid grasp as a 14, 15, 16 year old on like how my body works in the water and how I can apply different things. Um, that was the first time that I compared me in the water to like a marriage or a relationship. It's a dance. It's not just you muscling. This is not just me having to be with the water at a certain time. It's like, no, no, this is a relationship that you have to work on. Do the daily goals that you have at all relate to the logbook journaling? I won't write them in my logbook, but I'm, I'm, I'm aware every time I'm driving to practice or in the locker room getting ready for practice what the goals are for that day. I love training. I think it's so much fun. You get to interact with guys on the team. You get to see what you're really capable of doing. I, I've said this before, I'm not, I'm not there to be your friend. I'm there to help you get better and I expect the same in return. I want people in my face. I don't ever want to get complacent. I want people beating me in practice. I want to take it to a new level. I've never, I've never had a race hurt worse than a practice. That's the feeling of getting better. And that's the logbook. Yeah, and I, so kind of switch things up. I haven't really been journaling too much this year. My counselor that I work with, I was kind of filling her in on, yeah, this is usually journal, and she was kind of asking how I write. It's pretty harsh, like it's either like good, here's what was good, here's what was bad. Um, so I kind of dropped it 
for a little bit just so I can, I think, figure out a better way to write instead of everything being good or bad. I think more so of just like a, here's what happened throughout the day. So I haven't, I haven't journaled in really since after Tokyo. I forgot who I was talking to, but somebody close to you and they're like on the, with the personal journals when you would fill one up, I think they said throw you would throw it away yeah, or, or, or some, yeah. somebody said you burned it once or? Maybe I've burned one. Um, no, I usually just throw them out. I don't think I would want to look back on those. I don't know, everyone's different. Yeah. But yeah, I filled one up recently. I think it was right after Tokyo, right before, around the time when I stopped and I didn't even feel bad for throwing it out. That's why I was like, okay, maybe this isn't like as crucial as I thought. And then I think I just need to give myself a little time to step away from it, learn how to actually journal correctly. After our sit down, Dressel dug up a few of those swim logbooks to read a few excerpts. This was, I mean, this is one of my first logbooks, so this has to be 15 or 16. Yeah, or 14 or 15. Let's see, Wednesday, January 4th, 4 a.m., 3 a.m., 200 backstroke, 100 breasts, 100 fly. Felt bad to start, but all strokes died the last lap of finishing that stroke. Fly and breasts felt okay at times and hit a point where they felt awful. Did good in the set and stayed positive, which made the set go by a lot faster. After the set, I got cramps everywhere, calf, tricep, and foot. Felt like I had weights on my arms. I'm, I want to try to find... Um, there's just some practices where it's like... Where it's really funny. I'm trying to find it. It's usually going to be like February, March where I drop off. I'm breaking down. <laughs> so this is probably the start. I'm breaking down. I'm good, though. I can outrun fatigue, body putting, or... I can't outrun fatigue, body putting in speed, dying at the end of sets, all good. This happened last year. And will you beat yourself up in these? Um, yeah, let's find out. In 2017, learning to swim well now. I'll be fast. So this was before... Um, You've already been in an Olympics by then and won gold. Well, I was learning to swim well. I wasn't swimming well, though. This is um, leading up to Olympics. This is like the real side of, of logging. So just, yeah. Bad, me, so bad. Yep, that's May 6th. Oh, so that's like a month, that's like a month out from trials. Yeah, me, terrible, my body is done. Um, oh, geez. Yeah, this is, it's like interesting. I mean, I'm, I know I'm laughing a little bit, but when you're writing this, this isn't as a joke. Like, this is good information. Fuck me, fuck my body, fuck swimming. Jeez. Yeah, there's a, there's a totally different side of the sport that a lot of people don't see. There's this whole four-year process, and you're getting down to the crunch, crunch, crunch time, and it's this. It's this type of, of stuff of I want it to be perfect, and you just feel like trash. Those are real words I was feeling in that moment. I try to be as honest with myself as I can in these books because these aren't for, well, until now, these aren't really for anybody else's eyes. What are you thinking about mentally in that place if you're well, writing you can't, stuff like you can't, that? You can't give it much much thought. Like you have to write it down, close the book and get ready for tomorrow. So this is the next day. Felt much better, still a bit torchy. Um, just decent, nothing special, but good. Good still and better. Uh, body felt good, feeling good, so excited to swim. So you see just a matter of two weeks, how much can change. That'll do it for this podcast. To see video clips of my time with Dressel, including my run-in with his very hungry cows and a lesson off the starting block, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Before you go, please leave us a rating and review and let us know what you enjoyed or ways we can improve. Any feedback's always very much appreciated. Thanks again for listening.